Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. And welcome to yet another lovely episode of the Lions Ed by Donkeys podcast. I almost said it, we are the donkeys. Well, we are the donkeys. But then it like it occurred to me, are we the donkeys? We're certainly yeah, not the lions. We're not the lions. We're a mule team, I think, is what we basically <laughs> are. We're, we're like the documentarian voice staring at lions and donkeys. We're the quartermaster enduring heavy fire to point out that you had to fill out the por- forms for that. Oh no, we are donkeys. Fuck. We're donkeys, buddy. We're the guys from the Zulu War episode like, nope, sorry, we can't open up the ammo until all the ammo's gone from the next one. It doesn't matter how many of you are getting speared in the face. Yeah, whatever. That's that's anti-imperialism in action. On the bright side, that means we inadvertently killed redcoats, which is good. I'm not saying I dislike the British people. I'm just saying I hate their army in Africa. Uh, speaking of imperialism, we are on part three of our Spanish-American War, and this is the final episode. <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate I didn't get any like old-timey marching music for the, the drops. All I have is uh, an air horn in the Soviet Union's uh, national anthem. Never know you're going to need them because because that one never runs out. Like we well, can use it all the time. And um, there's no communists in this one though because we're not quite to that Cuba yet. So I can't use it here though. When we left you last time, the U.S. and Cuban rebel forces were tightening their grip around the Spanish-held towns of Santiago and Guantanamo. Not that Guantanamo, kind of that Guantanamo. It's not quite there yet. <laughs> While the Spaniards were reduced to simply trying to defend wherever they happened to be held up while also trying not to die of yellow fever and malaria and failing at all of those things, I should point out. That war is not going especially well. No, the real winner of this war is the Mosquito. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Undefeated. Yeah, it's, it's still winning to this day, putting up dubs on, on, uh, on humanity. However... Before the U.S. could lay siege or assault Santiago, they had to capture a few surrounding positions, normally elevated positions, uh, one of which would kind of hilariously and incorrectly go down in American military lore, and that is the Battle of San Juan Hill. I'm sure everybody's heard this. This is like the, the Teddy Roosevelt's triumphant Rough Rider charge up the hill. And good God, could that could the mythos around this be more wrong? Wow, that's crazy. I can't believe we would have done that. I mean, like, I, I understand that, like, battles get turned into propaganda. That, that sure, of course, they do. Happens. Yeah. Every battle we've ever talked about probably has been turned into propaganda for somebody. Um, but normally under that, there is some grain of truth. Like, 
you know, everybody talks about D-Day, you know, is the, is the big one uh, for World War II, um, you know, the Battle of Ardennes Forest for World War I. Those battles generally occurred the way we understand them to have occurred. Um, this is not the case. <laughs> Uh, this might as well be uh, fan fiction or like an alternative history novel uh, of the story that that we are generally told for San Juan Hill. You should buy Joe's book, but you should also buy my Teddy Roosevelt Empreg uh, slash trick too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. God, yeah, that's right, Joe. In actuality, the battles around this time should probably if they're correctly framed, be framed as a heroic victory of the Spanish soldier against overwhelming odds rather than a triumphant victory for the United States military. But we do have to get there first, as always. There were two main targets on July 1st, 1898. The main one was El Canay, uh, or Canay. Sorry, Cubans. Um, you Who probably knows, can't. <laughs> if you're in Cuba, you probably can't legally listen to this anyway. Uh, but my bad. Now, those garrisoned by around 500 lightly armed Spanish soldiers behind some small fortifications, uh, kind of like blockhouses, but it seems like they're more half-assed because the soldiers that are stationed there were pretty fucking sick. They weren't going to be doing a whole lot of digging. Right, they're busy dying. Yeah, they're way too busy trying not to vomit themselves until they die of dehydration. Um, they had no field guns. They had no real cannons. They had some small arms and two howitzers uh, that were 80 millimeters or pretty small uh, and very limited ammunition. Uh, the main force, thought to be around 1,000, was stationed on nearby San Juan Hill. Uh, the plan was to assault and take El Canai and then use the elevation of that hill to haul American cannons up it and then shell San Juan Hill. At that point, San Juan Hill would then be assaulted. So, you know, it's one leads into the other. And I'm going to say this is foreshadowing. Uh, if you do not take El Canai, that means taking San Juan Hill will be very, very hard. Oh, boy. Yeah. Now, for some reason, again, the Spanish commander withheld 10,000 soldiers that are held back in reserves in Santiago. But they love doing that shit. That's the one, like, through line of the... Cuban campaign of this uh, of this war specifically, it really didn't seem like the Spanish soldier wanted to fight too hard, and like that's not the fault of the Spanish soldiers at all. That's the fault of their commanders and their and their government. And I understand that I'm a little bit uh, biased on the the viewpoint of the soldier here, but I mean, like the last episode, they were waiting for Marines to land so they could steal food. Right, their uniforms are like rotting off their backs from. Ugh marching through the jungle they're just just so sick with i mean i would say with no medical care but no medical care is kind of the baseline but like the government didn't seem to give a shit about them so they're right. not going to give a shit Imagine about that. the government too hard right they're like yeah i'm just gonna sit back here mm -hmm. and to be fair santiago was very very important uh they didn't want like the commander didn't want to hemorrhage reinforcement trying to hold these hills though if i was the commander i would seem like you want to hold these hills um, for reasons that we will get into. Because um, once cannons are put on those hills, Santiago's fucked. It just says bad thing. Take cover. Like I maybe never went to military academy, but I have figured that out is high ground with cannon on it. Bad. You went to basic. Good enough. Yeah. I mean, apparently that's, that's more education than this Spanish military commander had. And to be fair, that it actually is more education than most of the American military commanders had in Cuba at the time. 
they weren't going to send out any reinforcements from those. So everybody on the hills, uh, San Juan Hill, Kettle Hill, and Elkanai are all left out. Uh, no relief. Now, Teddy at this point uh, was now in command of the Rough Riders after uh, Colonel Leonard Wood had been sent elsewhere to a higher level of command because he was pretty good at his job, unlike Teddy. Now, Teddy only had one job. That is to uh, park his unit at the foot of uh, between San Juan and Kettle Hills and keep the enemy occupied uh, and in place. So, like, they couldn't run off to reinforce El Kanai. To kettle them, yeah. It's to perimeter check them, yeah. Now, keep that in mind. That is supposed to be his only job. Once El Kanai was taken and they had their cannons dragged up on top of the hill, which just sounds miserable to me. Because um, like, remember, there's really no horses. They all got left behind. So all of this is has, having to be done by hand. We're all mule teams now, baby. Yeah, everybody's donkeys when it comes to El Kanai. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was going to wait until gunfire opened up from El Kanai uh, onto Kettle and San Juan Hills and then assault. I'm bringing this up continuously because, of course, that does not happen, uh, which, of course, brings us right back to El Kanai. Uh, remember, there's only 500 Spaniards dug in kind of on top, most of them half dead from disease, uh, and they would be fighting an enemy that numbered 8,000. Oh, geez. Yeah, under the command of General Henry Lawton. Uh, and they were also backed by some uh, Cuban rebels, but not that many. The Cuban rebels seem to be mostly... Uh, Shifted over to the hill, other hills. Uh, Lawton was also supported by four field guns and a near endless supply of ammo. So if you're a Spaniard on top of El Canai, just 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 kill me, fam. Just just like just retreat. I don't know. The shared zone. You can leave. Yeah. <laughs> like honestly, it's kind of surprising they didn't. And that's one thing that, like, despite the Spaniards getting steamrolled throughout the, the entirety of this war, for the most part, they didn't really ever seem to rout. They're like, oh, I guess we just have to sit here and die now. Okay. Mosquitoes, Americans, what's the difference? Yeah, honestly, mm-hmm. I'd rather get shot anyway. At this point, it's like I'm choosing between getting catching a, a slug in the throat or catching a mosquito and dying a week later. Literally shitting my stomach lining out, right? Yeah. I know it, like this game of horrible Russian roulette uh, that we've just invented. I know which one I hope I win. Take me to the execution chamber. I don't care anymore. <laughs> The execution chamber is just like a badly built shack full of mosquitoes. Oh, yeah. No, fate words and death. Now, seeing this force arrayed against them, the Spanish commander, a guy, uh, Brigadier General Joaquin Vera del Rey, saw that uh, we might be fucked. Uh, being out number 10 to 1 and having limited supply of everything other than yellow fever, he knew that uh, he was kind of not in a good position. They hadn't dug in as much as they wanted because they couldn't. Uh, and Del Rey, to his, uh, to his credit, knew that if he forces men to work any harder, they'd probably just start dropping dead. Right. Uh, so they, they had this array of blockhouses, uh, which, like we talked about, I believe, in episode two. Uh, but these were pretty well positioned. There was more than one, for, for, for one fact. And two, all of the gun ports intersected so they could all support one another. Hey, covering fire. Yeah. It's, it's a thing that you generally don't think about. Which is also kind of a revolutionary military tactic every once in a while. It's like, of course, all of these fighting positions should be able to uh, support one another. And then, like, it's 1898, and someone's like, I have an idea. Guys, I have an idea. (laughs) 
I know that, like I said, it sounds incredibly simple, but it's also very, very devastating and really hard to assault. Um, he requested reinforcements from Santiago, which were denied, like I said. And then because he was born in Ibiza, he got ready to party. <laughs> I didn't even have to make that one up. He really was born in Ibiza. As the Americans advanced, they're quickly torn to shit. Despite the advent of smokeless powder not exactly being very new, several units of the U.S. Volunteer Force hadn't actually gotten equipped with it. Because remember, like what, like we pointed out, Teddy and the Rough Riders kind of got preferential treatment because Teddy Roosevelt was involved. Right, Teddy Roosevelt. But they got all the all the good shit. Everyone else just got a uh, butt fuck. They got hand-me-downs. Um, and like the further you went down the line, especially if you, you know, happened to be black, the worse your equipment got. So this was the second Massachusetts volunteer and infantry. And they were given the the old weapon, not the Craig Jorgensen, but the weapon that the military got before then, which still used black powder. So every time they opened fire, it was just like, oh, look, there they are. Oh, hey, guys. Yeah, it was a giant black spotlight on their position. And every time they opened fire, uh, an eyewitness said, quote, the Americans received such a shower of bullets as seemed at one time as if the company must be wiped out of existence. So uh, they ran. <laughs> Stop being racist. <laughs> yeah, they ran real, real fast uh, because you know, every Spanish gun was like, hey, look, look at those assholes and opened fire on them. It was also later revealed that this unit was largely green, uh, meaning only levied for this, uh, like made out of volunteers. I, I use the word levy incorrectly. We're not conscripted, but like largely only raised for this. Uh, some other volunteer units were, did have some like veterans in them. This one did not. And only about half of them had ever been trained. Terrific. So this is probably the first time they fired their weapons ever. Good stuff. Now, after realizing that they had sent a unit armed with 45 caliber black powder rifles, Commander William Ludlow realized maybe we should pull those guys back before we, we kill them all. Right. Oh, wow. How noble. Yeah. Uh, th- this, this is why he makes the big bucks. Like, hmm, black powder bad. They're all dying. Mm. And also, the, they're running. Uh, you know, that's something we, I think we've talked about before in the past, but like seeing a unit run for their life is incredibly demoralizing for people who aren't there. That sounds demoralizing. <laughs> Even though some units haven't been committed to battle, they're seeing this one unit like break and run for their, like drop their weapons or run as fast as they can, like completely unorganized. It's, it's really bad for an army. And then they think to themselves, maybe I too should do that. Yeah, like, I don't want any of that smoke. I'm getting the fuck out of here. That's why most routes start as a trickle and end up as a flood. So when a unit starts breaking, you need to get them the fuck out of there, even though the command, like, Ludlow doesn't give a shit about their safety. I mean, of course he doesn't. He's a general, but he cares about the health of his army. And by health, I mean cohesiveness. Not getting your dicks punched in, right? Yes. That's a tactical term. Yeah, that, that is what they teach you at West Point. Do not get your dick punched in. It is then that the Americans figured out that their fire support was also equally fucked. As Lon ordered his cannons into action, he realized that the single battery of field guns that he brought with him also used black powder. This meant on top of them being very slow to fire uh, on top of their new counterparts. Like we've talked about the Krupp gun, uh, like the easiest way to compare that is like breech loading World War I artillery that could rapid fire. It was like revolutionary because you could fire it so quickly. Right. Though the Krupp guns are kind of like that. And that's what the Spanish oh, have. Gotcha. Oh, dear. The Americans have Civil War hand-me-downs. Right. 
Um, they were easy to spot uh, because, again, firing massive clouds of black powder. Uh, they also carpeted the entire battlefield of black powder. And since you were attacking up a hill, that literally only hurts you. Yeah, because you're just trying to charge with uh, shit in your face. Yeah. Um, and not to mention, they have bad range. Uh, you're firing up a hill, so your range is already kind of fucked. And the black powder doesn't help. And because of the Spaniards using Mausers, the Spanish could just shoot at the cannoneers, which is not a position you ever want your artillery to be in. They're supposed to be out of small arms fire range. Right. And also the giant cloud of smoke made it very, very easy for the Spaniards to dial in their howitzers. Right. Because you could just sort of point and click if you yeah, will. Yeah. Math has left the equation at that point. Like, mm-hmm. no, no, just that general area. Over there. So every time the American field guns opened fire, they got blasted with everything the Spanish had. Uh, And Lawton, being a bad commander, kept telling gun crews to rapidly switch targets. This meant that instead of them focusing their guns on the blockhouses or maybe enemy artillery uh, until it was destroyed, they just like hit things a couple of times and move, hit things a couple of times and move. And then the Spanish have time to rebuild. Yeah. They hardly even needed to do that because the amount of cannon fire that he directed on the blockhouses wasn't even enough to destroy them. He destroyed nothing all while getting shot to hell. It's going, asshole. And if to make a bad situation worse, Lawton decided that the best way to do this would be to just constantly order frontal assaults against the Spanish positions. Even wave attacks are famously known for working good. That's right. Uh, And I mean, when you have 8,000 soldiers against 500, you probably don't assume it's going to take very many. Um, But it turns out the Spanish were ready to fight. After several hours of this, Lawton changed his mind again and then finally ordered his artillery to destroy the Spanish strong points one at a time, as he should have done in the first place before ever going into battle. Uh, Once breaking them open with artillery, he then ordered the infantry to advance without throwing themselves at gun ports. Again, should have done that in the first place. Well, he's learning. That's important. It's important to learn from your mistakes, Joe. You know what? Here's the thing. We We both host shows based on disasters, right? We happen to host two shows that trial and error is not the best way to learn from. Speak for yourself. I think it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) That's what that's what makes me money, Joe. Like, well, there's your problem in engineering disasters. There's your plug. Uh, is like you should know how to build a bridge before you build it. And you're like, whoopsie doodle, killed fifty people. Won't do that again. And like military tactics, like, hmm, I've seemed to have lost an entire division. What if I do this? Like, you could have done that in the first place. Like, we're not talking. We see you. We hear you. <laughs> we will listen and learn from our mistakes. You are valid. <laughs> We see you. We hear you dying in the barbed wire in front of that machine gun nest. Oh, you're being shelled. Oh, that's a shame. And these aren't revolutionary things we're talking about. These are very, very simple. People have learned before the Spanish-American War that frontal assaults aren't the best choice. Now, Delray was commanding his soldiers from the front because you know his soldiers were fighting very hard. And, of course, that got him rewarded with a shot in both legs. Blech. With like that fucking skit from Ace Ventura when he gets the spears in both oh, legs. Yeah. <laughs> um, now he went down. Joe, you're gonna be a hands-on commander, dickhead. <laughs> like I, every time I always hear about this, like, and then of course as a soldier, I'm always like, yeah, why isn't the commander up here fighting? Like, because when he gets his fuck, when he gets kneecapped, and we have no leadership, they target him because they target him a little bit. 
shoot the most flamboyantly dressed man with all the medals on his chest. That man's wearing eight kerchiefs. Get him. <laughs> yeah. Now, he was loaded onto a stretcher because when you catch two slugs to the legs, you tend to go down like a sack of shit. Uh, and his deputy commander was actually his son. <laughs> they were walking uh, the stretcher back to the rear to evacuate him with some of his other officers giving like his parting commands because he knew the battle was lost. It was all about how long they could hold on. Right. And that it happened to be when Americans breached the top of the hill and immediately gunned them all down and killed them. <laughs> uh, now, war crimes weren't really a thing yet. Um but I do have to point out it is considered incredibly bad taste to, <laughs> to murder a wounded enemy commander. Um, like this is, this is the gentlemanly era of warfare. Mm-hmm. Now with the asterisks, assuming both sides are white, you know, the, the same thing was not afforded to uh, minority soldiers or native armies. Zulu or- Zulu, yeah, exactly. Uh, but if two white armies fought one another, it's one of those like, ah, we will simply w- walk you back to our camp. And we'll talk about this a little bit later of how well prisoners of war in this era are treated, especially if you're an officer, mostly if you're an officer, like kind of going back to uh, bounty days, like you capture a knight rather than murdering them because they're worth a lot of money and then you just murder all the foot soldiers because they're worthless. But yeah, they just, the Americans breach the top like, look at that motherfucker, shoot him. Uh, and like, while they're on a strip, they murder him and his son. <laughs> Dick move, man. Yeah, not not cool. Uh, I mean, whatever. I, I'm not going to cry for the wounded Spanish guy, but also it's like even even for warfare of the time, Americans are just throwing up dick moves as far as they can see. That makes this country great, Joe. Despite his uh, death, the Spanish, still horribly outnumbered and now without a commander or deputy commander, continued to fight for and over every single strong point until they finally ran out of ammo. 12 hours after they started. Now, of the 500 or so Spanish soldiers who were on the hill, about 200 dipped out the back, escaping north and leaving the Americans to stand triumphantly over a smoldering pile of shit. All the fortifications had been destroyed. And not to mention, remember the whole point of the battle. It was to support the attacks on San Juan and Kettle Hills. This just took 12 fucking hours. The battle already started. They just moved. They're like, oh, Elkanai is pointless. Like, none of this shit mattered. Uh, not, not to mention, if the Spanish would counterattack and, and they won, there's nothing to defend from anymore because they destroyed them all. Now, the commander at San Juan realized that Lawton was just never going to win the battle or something. And they waited only two hours before launching the attack. Um, sorry, three hours after launching the attack uh, uh, on San Juan and Kettle Hill. So all of that was for nothing. Absolutely nothing. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Now, if they left the Spanish in place with their howitzer and, you know, 500 more soldiers, could they have ran off and supported San Juan and Kettle Hills? Maybe, but probably not. The Spanish really didn't try to support one another. Um, They probably would have just sat there. That seems to be more of what they were about. Not to mention force marching their soldiers in their condition that distance to, like, flank the Americans. Seems very unrealistic. Uh, they probably would have just dropped dead. <laughs> hey, you don't have to exert yourself too hard if you're just sitting in a hole shooting at a guy in a in a blue jacket as he runs by. You know, however, diarrhea city. You know, yeah. I mean, just what you do is you pop a squat, just keep your pants down, and just <laughs> constantly keep the flow of diarrhea going into the dirt as you shoot at the Americans. Thank you, Joe. That's the image I wanted. Hell yeah! New shirt design idea. Thanks, buddy. 
now, during the previous three hours, while the Battle of Kanai was still ongoing and they were waiting for Lawton to win, the soldiers had moved into position at San Juan and Kettle Hills. Assuming at any point they would eventually hear his guns on the top of the neighboring hill and know they were about ready to go ahead. But they didn't. So they just kind of sat around. Um, but that since they'd moved up, they were now in the range of Spanish snipers and the occasional bout of heat stroke. In one place that would become known as Hell's Pocket, the Spanish, were chew- the Spanish chewed through the command structure of an entire American brigade. Uh, have, you, have you ever watched We Were Soldiers? Yeah, yeah. You remember the scene where they're all trapped in the bush and they're like, follow me, I'll get us out of here. And every single person stands up and immediately gets murdered. Yep. That happened. So it began with Colonel Charles A. Wickoff. Wickoff began heading down a trail and 30 minutes later, he emerged from the woods and was shot. He died as his staff officers carried him to the rear. Lieutenant Colonel William S. Worth, next in command, assumed leadership and within five minutes, he was also shot. Lieutenant Colonel Emerson Liscombe, again, they just don't name him like they used to. No, they don't. Assumed command within another five minutes, he was shot. Lieutenant Colonel Ezra P. Hewers, fourth in command of the brigade, finally assumed brigade command and managed to keep it this time. (laughs) This is burning through an entire brigade command structure. All of this by snipers. The San Juan Heights are made of two hills. Like I said, Kettle Hill and then San Juan Hill. Um, They were right next to one another. After being shot at for a few hours and doing nothing, American junior commanders began complaining, wondering what the fuck they were doing and demanding they be allowed to attack. Now, I say junior commanders like this is captain and below, like yelling at generals, like, why the fuck can't we attack? Like, we're just sitting here getting picked off. And honestly, the true hero of this battle, if we're going to pick a hero. It's Teddy Roosevelt as hell. God, I wish. At least like American history wouldn't be so stupid then. I'm not saying that that would make Teddy Roosevelt good. It would just make him not a liar. Fair enough. Now, the the true hero of this battle, if we were to pick one from the American side, is actually getting Lieutenant Jules Ord. Wow. Man, they really do not name him like they used to. No. Um, his his actual full name is much longer than that. Uh, and I just, I, I use this, this shorter version. Now, Jules Ord asked General Hawkins, remember, a general, he's a lieutenant. He's the lowest ranking officer you can possibly be. Mm-hmm. He walked up to a general who was sitting around hoping Lawton would finally do his job and said, quote, General, if, you're, if you'll order a charge, I will lead it. Hawkins, remember, a general responded to the lieutenant saying, quote, I will not ask for volunteers and I will not give permission and I will not refuse it. Which means like, you do you, bro. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, it's the biggest fucking cop out I've ever heard in military that's, that's history. Some real mistakes were made shit. Like, that is, if you do it, I won't stop you. But if you succeed, I will definitely take credit, which is exactly what happened. Now, to be fair, Teddy Roosevelt got most of the credit for dumber reasons. When Ord ordered the charge, he was supported by the 10th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers. These black cavalry troopers were supported by other black infantrymen from the 6th Infantry Regiment. Now, I say cavalry, but remember, everybody's on foot. Right. And their fire support didn't come from cannons. Because remember... Elkanai is still going on next door. There, are, there is no cannon support here. Just guys being dudes. Just guys vibing out on Elkanai. Now, they did have some cannons with them, but they were black powder cannons like the ones at Elkanai. And the, even the artillerists were like, yeah, we might as well not even roll these motherfuckers out. <laughs> so instead, they rolled out Gatling guns, uh, the crank ones. 
Like cool. his, we, we were, grinders, yeah, nice. We talked about potato digger machine guns. These are the old crank Gatling guns from the West. Now, these were originally tasked with rear security, defending convoy, like supply convoys and stuff like that. The boldest ass motherfucker on earth, a guy named Lieutenant John Parker, got a brilliant fucking idea. Because there's a lot of people listening right now that maybe you're not super familiar with crank Gatling guns. They don't have great range and they're kind of unreliable. They're hard to use. They're black powder as well. But Lieutenant John Parker, the detachment's commander, looked at all of that like, no, 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 I got an idea. Hold my beer. Oh, boy. Remember, they don't have pack animals, so they're so his crewmen are pushing these up the hill to get them into position. Right, they've just got dudes. Yeah, and the, and they're just getting shot by the diarrhea corps. <laughs> now, a few of his soldiers did drop out from disease as they were pushing the guns up the hill. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, in my opinion, just play dead. I don't know. Now, imagine there's all this gunfire going like, uh, I don't feel so good. And you just lay down and everybody. <laughs> now, normally around six of these men uh, were needed to work each gun. And Parker already didn't have that because so many of his guys had dropped out. So he ordered his fourth gun to be abandoned and crew uh, the remaining gaps in the other one. Once in position, his gunners were able to start churning through ammo so quickly, though kind of inaccurately, that the sheer volume of fire was enough to send the Spanish running away from the parapet of the hill. The Gatling guns weren't really hitting anything. It's just like the sound and it's suppressing fire. Right. You know, it's suppressing fire in an era where that concept is still kind of foreign. Nobody expects to get a machine gun or a Gatling gun turned on them while you're defending a hill. Now, once Parker was in position, the Rough Riders of, and along with the 3rd Cavalry Regiment began their assault on Kettle Hill. And here's where the Spanish kind of fucked themselves. I think you meant where pregnant Teddy Roosevelt, once again, please buy my slash vec. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate it so was, much. I know you do, Joe. That's what I'm here for. It's a great body. It's only Liam. <laughs> Teddy shouldn't be running up a hill. He's so pregnant. Preg- Pregger's Teddy assaulting the hill. Put that on a shirt. Oh, don't God. put that on a shirt. <laughs> Please don't put pregnant Teddy Roosevelt assaulting of San Juan Hill. Absolutely nobody will understand that design, which means it's perfect. The guy who came up with the design for the trenches and the dugouts in San Juan and Kettle Hills didn't actually look at the hills. He looked at a map. So when he Uh-oh. ordered the lines be dug in, they're actually too far back on the hill, not on the edge of the hill, meaning the soldiers in the lines had to lean out and over the lines to shoot down at Americans, kind of defeating the purpose of the lines in general. So they're like half exposed or they're just like out in the open. They're almost completely out in the open. Okay. Uh, they, they have to stand out and lean all stand up and lean all the way over to sh- completely exposing themselves okay. to, you know, rifles and also Lieutenant Parker's Gatling guns uh, who had been firing the whole time unbroken at 700 rounds a minute. Now, even with this advance up Kettle Hill, they began to slow down and bog down as the Rough Riders and other soldiers and officers began to kind of bunch up, slow down, losing the cohesion of their charge. Also, soldiers began to drop mid-battle from heat stroke and exhaustion. Uh, Because remember, they're wearing like cowboy clothes running up through... 28 (laughs) kerchiefs. Yes. 
boots with like wool trousers, presumably, because just riddled with disease. They, I mean, remember, there's not a ton of potable water, so like they're already dehydrated. Even during this battle, the vast majority of casualties are from disease in the middle of battle. Yeah. There was the occasional bullet wound. A lot of Americans got winged in this battle. That is when the Buffalo soldiers, under the command of, uh, wait for it, John, no nickname given Pershing. <laughs> He's back, oh. baby. This, yeah, is, this he... is where he got his nickname. Fucking was. God damn it, man. His nickname was literally N-word Pershing, <laughs> which was then downgraded slightly to Blackjack, uh, because even back then saying the N-word as a part of military record was known to be bad. Wasn't there a dog named that at some point? I'm pretty sure. Maybe just the first three letters, I want to say. I think it was H.P. Lovecraft's cat. This cat's name was N-word. <laughs> I, 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 this is stupid. That's right. Is <laughs> a cat or a dog? Is but I know it's H.P. Lovecraft. You know, I, I sometimes to myself, why did the terrorists hate us? And then I'm just like, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, Thankfully, I, I, terrorists I never racist. Yeah, famously. Famously not racist. No, I, I do have to say that Pershing is the least bad pro- person in this battle, and we will unfortunately have to hand it to Pershing a little bit later on. I don't want to have to hand it to fucking Pershing, man. I will say in comparison to Teddy Roosevelt, I will oh, hand God. it to Pershing. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll explain why in a little bit. Now, Pershing was leading the Buffalo Soldiers. Again, that's where he got his nickname. And as they advanced, the Gatling gun fire got too close to them. Uh, and some Americans began to panic that the Spanish might actually have some of their own uh, or maybe some machine guns but quickly realized that, nope, we're just getting shot by friendly fire. <laughs> the Gatling guns were called off uh, by a guy, again, doing a wig wag, uh, which is, you know, waving a handkerchief real fancy-like. I say, boys, are giving me the vapors. <laughs> this allowed the soldiers to assault over the top of Kettle Hill and begin to fight along the trenches. Now, the first soldier to crest Kettle Hill by all reports was Sergeant George Barry, a black man of the Buffalo Soldiers, dual-wielding standards of the 10th and 3rd oh. Cavalry. This man was armed with only flags. Two of them, though. <laughs> uh, you want to know how we know that this black guy was the first one to breach enemy lines? Because Pershing wrote it in his notes. Pershing gave him credit. Well, that censored boy. For all of the problems going on that, and all of the history that gets buried during this battle, it wasn't because of Pershing. Pershing wrote openly that how well his soldiers fought. I mean, granted, of course, he was in command of them, so this reflects positively on them. Right. But he didn't lie. There was a plenty of white officers in the unit. Do you like the idea of like sharpening flagpoles to like like rusty knife? And just like going to hack and slashing like Lizzie Borden with the two sharpened edge ends of your flagpoles. I mean, they probably had spear tips on them. I mean, we still have spear tips on flat like flags in the military today. That obviously they're just for looks today. That's a shame. You should yeah go back. Maybe they were more practical back then. I imagine like being the idea. one Spaniard that gets speared to death of the fucking battle standard. Can you imagine having to like write home to his wife and be like, you're not going to fucking believe this. He got stabbed in the fucking chest. You're a dumbass husband, right? <laughs> now, 
I shouldn't have to point this out to longtime listeners of the show that how how whitewashed American history has become. Um, but like, even John Edward Pershing didn't try to cover up the achievements of black soldiers during this battle. Now, the reason why I bring up whitewashing again is because most Americans don't even know there were black soldiers present at the battle, let alone they had been the ones to win it. This revision of history goes so deep that there's a very famous picture of Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders on the hill uh, after yes. capturing it. It's cropped. Uh, there's a bigger picture of it that includes a lot of Buffalo soldiers. They crop no all of them out. No way. Yep. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm not surprised, but I didn't know that. I don't know. I guess maybe the a bit smart guy answer would be, well, they just wanted to make it a close-up of Teddy. Fuck off. Yeah, well, there's a reason why Teddy made sure the black guys are always on the fringes. <laughs> like, uh, But they were all cropped out uh, and then centered it on the all-white Rough Riders. I how that works. In my opinion, like I already said, if we're going to lavish praise on anyone in this battle, it should probably be the guy that went over the top armed only with flags. Uh, failing that, Lieutenant Ord, who came up with the charge in general, uh, and it was him who asked Teddy to support him, yelling at Colonel Roosevelt, again, a lieutenant saying, support the regulars as he ran over the top. And then again, remember, the Rough Riders fucking failed. They like they stopped their charge and had to be rallied by the Buffalo soldiers. Right. And Lieutenant Ord died in the battle. So like, you know, posthumously, he should have gotten something. And he had been like shot multiple fucking times and just kept running up the hill. And the Spaniards had to like fucking put one in his head like he was a zombie to finally put him down. Oh, Jesus Christ. He was also the first officer over the top of the hill uh, before he went down. So like Teddy Roosevelt fucking is the lightweight here, right? Ord was never given shit for his service. And most people think that's because he died on the rolls of an all black unit. And in a less shocking turn of events, neither were any of his soldiers ever given credit for anything that they did. It was only if you like dig deep into U.S. military history, because like the military right. itself didn't censor this. Like it's all of the dispatches and letters are freely available because it wasn't uncommon for black units led by white soldiers to accomplish incredible things. This the the thing that the military always did was award the white guys, but they never buried the unit history. That was all done by Teddy Roosevelt because the history of this battle and most of the propaganda around this battle was written and directed by Teddy Roosevelt. America's most racist Boy Scout. <laughs> he wrote his unit's history, which became canon and cut out everyone else. Ord was recommended for various other awards by his commanders because they knew what he accomplished. They are all quietly rejected. Again, most people believe it's because he was fighting with black men. Teddy's name also came up for awards, which were also rejected for reasons we'll talk about later. Now, the reason why this battle immediately blew up is because Teddy could play the press like a fiddle and he was a celebrity. People knew who he was. So people continuously, mostly the press and the various battlefield journalists that were there, would not stop talking about him. Not to mention, Teddy loved some Teddy. He would never stop yes. talking about himself. He never spared any line or any expense making him and his soldiers look like they had won the entire war. But the army kind of knew what happened. And Teddy was not popular in military command, mostly because he made him look bad. 
for we'll talk about a little bit later. But that was until 2001 when Teddy was given the Medal of Honor for some reason. What? <laughs> Making him the only president, a bet a dead one, to ever have one. Now, his citation is probably the funniest uh, Medal of Honor citation I have ever read um, because it is the most inaccurate one I've ever read. So it says, quote, for gallantry at the risk above life and above the call of duty, Lieutenant Colonel Theodore Roosevelt distinguished himself in acts of bravery on the 1st of July, 1898, near Santiago de Cuba, Republic of Cuba, while leading a daring charge up San Juan Hill. There's a lot wrong there. For one, Teddy did not charge up San Juan Hill. He charged up Kettle Hill. And remember, he did not lead it. Quote, Facing the enemy's heavy fire, he displayed extraordinary bravery throughout the charge and was the first to reach the enemy trenches. Did he, though? He was not. We also know this is not true due to the notes of you know, now-dead General Pershing, who said the first was his Buffalo soldiers. In short, this must be the only Medal of Honor citation where the main notes of reference is the guy being rewarded the Medal of Honor, even if he was dead in this case. Anyway, fuck Teddy. Moving on. Fuck Teddy. Yeah. You, I mean, on this like, show, we can pretty much, you can give us any guy from history and we'll find a way to say fuck that guy. I mean, generally, yeah. If you're notable from history, it's probably for bad reasons. But like, imagine any soldier today being rewarded the Medal of Honor and like, citation, dude, trust me, bro. I wrote the book. Like, imagine me getting a reward in military service based on shit that I wrote in the Hooligans of Kandahar. That's pretty much what happened. It would be tight, though. Granted, my book is significantly more accurate than Teddy's. <laughs> or uh, what's his name? Oh, I mean, they all write books now. But uh, what was the SEAL book? Uh, you have to be way more specific. There's so many. Which is the one, the guy that killed Bin Laden, allegedly. Oh, Robert O'Neill. Yeah. There we go. I mean, like, his is inaccurate, but I, I think the most inaccurate one is American Sniper. Oh, yeah. That one is like demonstrably false in a lot of places. E- even people like their his like unit commanders like no nah, that that never happened. Anyway, don't read it. It's really bad. Chris Kyle, notable not great guy. Yeah, not not great. Um as soldiers got to the top of the hill, the Spanish attempted to fight them off with bayonets for a few minutes before deciding this hill is not fucking worth it and retreating. At this point, San Juan Hill had had not yet been taken. Remember, this is Kettle Hill. And Spanish and American soldiers began exchanging shots across the distance until a third brigade whose battered fuckers had gone through seemingly their entire chain of command had finally been ordered to attack and capture it. Now, at some point during this battle, Teddy ordered his unit to assault between the two hills in order to assist the fighting at San Juan, but did so without orders and so hastily only about half of his unit even knew what was happening. He was caught halfway by General Sumner, who was kind of hanging out there, and yelled at and screamed at and ordered to go back to the fucking hill he was supposed to be on. <laughs> now, by this time, even if he had made it to the Battle of San Juan, it was mostly over and he had wasted his time. More than that, he had wasted his men. Remember, they had just charged up Kettle Hill with no supplies and no water. Uh, they were also riddled with disease, so they were exhausted. And the second march completely put the rest of his unit out of commission. That's what you're just shitting out of your own mouth. <laughs> I cannot imagine being this fucked. Like, I've been exhausted. I've been dehydrated. I've never been riddled with internal parasites and then all of those things. You know? I have pretty bad diarrhea, but not like active threat to my like life and, and limb diarrhea. 
Like, I've had dysentery to the point I almost had to be taken like medevaced to a hospital. And even that is nothing in comparison to what I think most soldiers were fighting through at this point. Cause like I could still walk, I could still right. do things under my own strength. Cause like I was getting IVs and stuff. These guys weren't even getting water to drink. Right. So like at this point, the rough riders like can't fight anymore, at least not for this battle, which would be a real motherfucker if say the Spaniards are about ready to counterattack, which they were. Oh, Hey, are the Spaniards about ready to counterattack? <laughs> now the Spanish counterattack on San Juan was mostly turned aside with their main effort being against kettle. This included 600 soldiers and it was probably more than enough uh, to win and dislodge the tired soldiers who had just taken it and been preoccupied since with filling the remaining area with their, pants is full of shit right. uh, or also just dropping from disease which was still happening like the battle's over people are still killing over mm-hmm. not to mention there's a lot of wounded like a lot of americans got shot during this battle who are pooping out of their mouths at the moment poop and vomit coming into your nose eyes and ears yeah yes thank you joe rapidly your skin cracking open and the mosquitoes coming out and poop coming out yeah <laughs> now Serious military history podcast. <laughs> this would have been the case if it would not have been for, again, Lieutenant Parker bailing the entire unit out. He ordered two of his Gatling guns to be dragged up to the top of the hill, overlooking the advance of any attacking enemy. Imagine the guy being doing the dragging. Just like, oh, fuck God. you, man. Like, like, we did it. We won. Like, do you want the good news or the bad news? He's dead. <laughs> Gary Steve. <laughs> he positioned them on either side. And like one facing Kettle Hill, one facing San Juan under the command of a sergeant. And they had a right angle to like down the hill. So like on the back side of the hill, as the attackers rushed up the back side of Kettle Hill, they ran directly into a Gatling gun Ooh. at a range of only 500 meters. That single Gatling gun tore into the Spanish who assumed the guns had still been down at the foot of the hill because like only a fucking asshole would have dragged them to the top. Well, it turns out Lieutenant Parker was just that kind of asshole. In only a few minutes, only 40 Spanish survivors ran back down the hill after their counterattack had failed. Now with the famed battle of San Juan Hill over and taking a look at the numbers, it really shouldn't be respected in American military history as it is. For one, it started with the fuck up at El Canai, which is just a series of badly thought out frontal assaults. Like we should celebrate Lawton about as much as we celebrate Cadorna. If it wasn't for a lieutenant who decided to wing it with some Gatling guns, there's a good chance that none of this shit even works out. Or if it does, the Americans are fucking savage trying to pull it off. Not to mention the Spanish soldiers, most of them very fresh conscripts, were outnumbered 16 to 1. And they're pooping out of their mouths. I cannot emphasize that at all. <laughs> Just drooling and foaming at the mouth with various kinds of disease (laughs) and inflicted twice as many casualties on the Americans. Now, throughout this battle, you probably assume there's thousands dead, but there wasn't. Only 144 Americans were dead, but also 1,000 wounded. Not great. No, it's 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 real bad, uh, and not, that's not counting people who had to like take a knee because they were dying from internal parasites or whatever. Take a knee. <laughs> Give me five. I'll be right back in. Get the cord. 
Get a cord on the end. That's fine. That's fine. fine, officer. I'm gonna kill this Spanish like vomiting. <laughs> yeah, you go get him, Tiger. Sprinting up the hill, vomit freely flowing out both sides of your mouth. <laughs> yes, sir. Just imagine what that looks like if you're like one of the Spaniards who's not dying, surrounded by people who are ill, being ran at by people who are screaming and vomiting everywhere. Like we've made the worst battlefield on earth. Didn't we do that at the Battle of Bella one? <laughs> uh, have you ever watched Blue Mountain State? Hell yeah, man. You remember the episode where he injected himself with rabies? Yes. It's that. Everybody has rabies. <laughs> now, for the Spaniards, they lost 114 killed and only 350 wounded. Now, the casualties were so lopsided, this actually forced the army to start immediately moving away from the Craig Jorgensen rifle and towards the 30 at 6 Springfield because they were starting to understand they brought some shitty Western pop guns to a European style war. At the close of these battles, the U.S. had finally gotten into the position that they had wanted. They have the elevated position over the city. And about two days after the battles were over, they sent a letter to the Spanish general Arsenio Linares, who was the commander of the garrison within the city, to surrender, or they'd said blowing the hell out of it. Now, Linares was backed by the naval commander, Pascal Savara, who thought he was in a decent position to hold on, at least for a little bit. Uh, No. <laughs> Already then. <laughs> now, he figured that he would just have to hold on uh, in Santiago until the 10,000 or so soldiers stationed in Guantanamo City sallied forth out of the siege and relieved them. Now, there was a few problems with these assertions. Savara knew that his naval squadron was fucked. He knew the entire Spanish Navy was fucked in the advent of war, and he'd been trying to tell the government for that for a very long time. So while the U.S. spent the several years prior to this updating their fleet, the Spanish Navy was in a state of disrepair as a whole and were still in its colonies. When Severa took command in Cuba just before the outbreak of war, he realized that nobody had trained any of the Spanish Navy crews in three years. Just lack of money, lack of desire. Like, I think it's just the rot, uh, the, certainly a lack of money, an overextension of fight. Because like the war in Cuba and the war in the Philippines and a very low simmering conflict in Puerto Rico was just like stretching them thin. The government didn't really know what they were doing. The military was mostly a hollowed out shell. So things just started falling apart. Sure. In the months since the war had begun, he had been arguing with the Spanish government about the use of the squadron that he had in port. They wanted him to charge out and fight the American blockade, which was making things worse. Like the Spaniards could not resupply Cuba, even if they wanted to, which they didn't have the ability. Right. Uh, And while that makes sense on paper, he knew they were never going to succeed. And it was potentially a pointless suicide attack. As the government in Madrid could not tell him what to do as he fell under the governor general of Cuba, him telling the government to fuck off was fine for at least the first month. Until the heights fell, uh, at which point Governor General Blanco panicked and ordered him to do it anyway. So he, after telling Blanco it was nice working with him, he got on his boats and led a few light cruisers that he had out of the bay, running directly into a line of American battleships and cruisers. Uh-oh, what happened then? So the Americans signaled alarm at 0930 a.m. Within an hour at 1030, the battle was over. Oh, Okay. The Spanish fleet was effectively destroyed. Most of the ships had taken some damage and ran aground, uh, with American sailors actually running over to try to save them. 
and a gesture of old-timey high seas respect. Severina's officers were taken aboard the USS Iowa. No, not that one. There's more than one. Nope, same one. Nope, there's <laughs> only one. They just change it out every few years. <laughs> just a World War II battleship hanging out in the 1800s. Uh, where they officially surrendered and they were taking his POWs back to Annapolis, the Naval Military Academy, and allowed to just wander around without guards, making friends with their other sea bros until the end of the war. Well, what are they going to do in Annapolis? You know, why, why imprison them? What are they, they going to do? some classes, I don't know. Um, uh, congratulations, you're actually starting at fullback next week, Enrique. Uh, <laughs> Congrats at starting at D4. And that's like when the unique thing, like you see how well they're treated. Um, is no, like, I, no, you can just hang out at the college. It's fine. We should do that again. Just unload Gitmo into Michigan State. I love the idea of like, you know, if you're captured, you do get to attend classes, but like you also have to line up at halfback. <laughs> like we're going to get every last ounce of work out of you, bud. I really like the idea that after all this of like, all right, well, uh, Mr. Severa, the war is over. You have to go back to Spain. Here's your bill. Um, we expect you to pay off your student loans and uh, <laughs> as quickly as possible. Like, fuck. Now, things only got worse for Linares inside Santiago. His relief column wasn't coming, mostly because their communication lines had been severed by Cuban rebels. And the last order that the garrison commander had given to uh, Guantanamo City was to hold the city at all costs. So they weren't leaving it. Ah, classic. Now, Linares didn't know that part. uh, And he was finally coming to the conclusion that he was all on his own. Now, somewhat thankfully for him, and also very conveniently, may I add, Linares got violently ill. And also during this point, he went to go check out what was going on at San Juan Hill, like during the battle, and caught a bullet in the shoulder. Oh, no, I've been grievously wounded. Uh, <laughs> it hurts so bad. <laughs> he went back, uh, and as the illness got worse, and, you know, it's 1800s, even late 1800s, when you get winged with a bullet, you slowly start to die. Uh, and he had to pass off command to General Jose Velasquez. Now, Velasquez took command of the situation while the battles on the hills were still wrapping up and sent multiple runners out to Guantanamo City, figuring that Linares must just be wrong about not being able to talk to them. Right. Uh, now, obviously, Velasquez is looking for reinforcements, uh, and he wasn't unaware of what Linares was trying to do, but soon the attitude within Santiago was becoming common knowledge to the Americans and the Cubans because all of his runners that he sent out towards the city were captured by rebels mm. okay. uh, and they had, you know, taken their letters and stuff. Right. But because he laid all of his runners were captured, he, he was like, I don't understand. Why isn't Guantanamo answering me? Guys, he probably just assuming his buddy was ghosting him or whatever. New garrison. Who dis? After the destruction of the Spanish squadron, the Americans realized, like, now we really have Velasquez dead to right. So they ordered him to surrender, and he refused. Now, this also opened up negotiations. Uh, Now, Velasquez is mostly trying to buy time, uh, assuming that at some point, Guantanamo would come and save him, or the Spanish would send a new fleet with reinforcements. He was just trying to buy time. Uh, Now, one of the things that he offered was, I'll give you the city. But you have to allow me and all of my men to withdraw to go to Guantanamo. And now President McKinley got personally involved at this point. Because remember, like, telegraphs exist now. So, like, their telegrams exist. So, news travels much quicker now. So, President McKinley is probably more involved in this war 
than any other war uh, in American history. Like even things moved slower to Lincoln during the Civil War, and he was in the United States. So he got personally involved and said that any surrender of the city would have to be unconditional. So on July 10th, the American forces began shelling the city only for a couple hours and stopped the next day. And uh, once again, demanded that Velasquez surrender. Probably shocked that they actually shelled the city. It was decided to surrender to save the city from any further bombardment. <laughs> like, oh, wow, you guys actually did it. Well, you got us. A week later, the, the final surrender was negotiated. And this is true. The generals all got together and got drunk. Like all the Spanish general, the Spanish officers all got together with the American officers after surrendering the city and got fucked up on whiskey. It's a rich man's war and a poor man's fight, chap. <laughs> now, this pretty much ended the land war in Cuba. While the navies occasionally still shot at one another as the final terms were being worked on, there was also a couple more American attempts to land some supplies west of Havana for Cuban rebels. Um, but the war wasn't technically over. While all of this fighting in Cuba was going on, the U.S. and Spain had been fighting over Puerto Rico. Much like Cuba, Puerto Rico had long been on the menu in regards to American ambitions in the region. Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote almost a decade prior to the war that setting up naval stations on Puerto Rico was the best way to expand American power throughout the Caribbean. So, you know, not to mention all the, the sugar plantations and other equally shitty reasons. Like, this is not the first time America's like, you know, maybe we should steal that. Right. Though through much of the preparation of the war in Cuba, while talking to Cuban rev uh, revolutionaries fully on the fuck Spain train, they also managed to infiltrate the island with spies and found some pretty useful intel on the Spanish military force back on the island. Though the spying effort was much dumber than you think. This isn't Cold War levels of spying here, but it also somehow worked. And this is honestly one of my favorite stories of military spying in human history. Edwin Emerson went down to Puerto Rico, pretending to be a German journalist, and went to the German consul on the island, asking for any other Germans who had lived there that he might be able to interview for a story. The consul uh -huh. gave him a name of a family, the Reichel family, and said, yeah, go talk to him. He then went to the village where the family lived and ran to their 14-year-old son. He then asked the 14-year-old if he had a map of the island, and the kid did, but it was too big for Emerson to take back with him. But... The kid was very, very nice and told him that he could just draw him a smaller one because he had memorized it. This included various uh, Spanish forts and harbors and fortifications that had just been part of the island. If you're a child, like, oh, no, it's just like the big black house that I like. Uh, he drew all of this in detail, uh, gave it to Emerson. and Emerson took this map straight to General Nelson Miles, who used it to plan future military missions and landings. So, yeah. Thanks, kid. Amphibious landings, so easy a 14-year-old can plan them on accident. <laughs> Don't ask us how the Battle of Gallipoli went. Yeah, yeah, they needed more 14-year-olds, obviously. Uh, it turns out a 14-year-old significantly smarter than Winston Churchill, uh, in case anybody needed more evidence of that. Now, strange side note to that story, that 14-year-old uh, named Rudolf Guillermo uh, Refkol ended up becoming an officer in the U.S. Army and fought in World War I. And his brother ended up becoming the first Puerto Rican to go to the Naval Academy. Wow. So I'm just saying that maybe they were in on the whole thing. <laughs> like, mm. I'm, I'm kidding. Or oh. am I? Mm. It was 14. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, Dr. Julio Hanna, who is one of the Puerto Rican leaders of the Cuban Revolutionary Party, also asked that the U.S. include Puerto Rico on whatever plans they had for Cuba in regards to kicking out the Spanish, not the... Uh, all of the other parts that we had plans for for Cuba. The imperialism, right. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, on the outbreak of war in April, the island was put under martial law. The Spanish, for some reason, didn't quite fully understand the scope of American ambitions and sent most of their military assets that were stationed in Puerto Rico to Cuba. That meant the military campaign of Puerto Rico was almost over as soon as it began. This was mostly naval battles limited to bombardments of oceanside towns and forts. At one point, the U.S. squadron under the command of Rear Admiral William Sampson rolled into the port of San Juan, Puerto Rico, expecting to find like a Spanish squadron there. He actually expected to find Severa's squadron, which we now know was sent down to Santiago, Cuba. So instead of, I don't know, turn around and leaving, uh, Sampson remembered that huh, nobody had trained the crew in a while. So he parked it in the port and just ordered them to like train gunnery skills by blowing up various buildings in the city before leaving. <laughs> Which is certainly uh, uh, on-the-job training. You see that orphanage? Blast it! <laughs> oh, God. Now, thankfully, they mostly targeted Spanish like military buildings, but like since they were training... They missed a fair amount of those shots. It just blew up random shit. Yeah. Almost orphanage got blown up. Yeah. But after the land war in Cuba was over, the president ordered the land invasion of Puerto Rico. The first American invasion was welcomed by civilians, but confronted by local militia. Despite numbering fewer than 10 guys and facing 1,300 Marines and soldiers armed with machine guns and naval support, the 10 guys attempted a counterattack. It did not go well. Oh, bless them. It blessed their fucking hearts. Also, the location of the invasion uh, was changed at the last minute by General Nelson Miles, or without talking or consulting to anybody to include the entire American government. Um, now, this generally isn't a problem, in my opinion. Doing war is his job. And, you know, what I believe in a civilian oversight of the military. However, once you pull that trigger, you kind of have to just let the military fight a war. Mm-hmm. But this is a kind of a funny situation because the Secretary of War, Russell Alger, only found out where his army was when he read the newspaper the next day. He's like, oh, they they invaded? Fuck, okay. The invasion ended up going incredibly well, probably a bit too well uh, for this exact reason. Uh, you know, Miles changed the invasion route for his soldiers to land the south of the island and advance west. This also happened to accidentally be the parts of the island that had the most hatred towards the Spanish. So there's virtually no resistance. Everybody's mm-hmm. like, oh, thank God, they're kicking the Spaniards out. Fuck Unfortunately, cetera, cetera. Like, the Americans are like, just wait, we got plans, homie. It's worse. Yeah. Or at least just as bad. Uh, the Spaniards were certainly worse, but this isn't a competition I want to get in. <laughs> Nobody wins this. No. Well, U.S. fruit might. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The, 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 the sugar, Domino sugar certainly won. Yeah. Well, that didn't mean there weren't some battles. Nearly all of them ended with like one or two people killed as the Spanish just didn't have a will to fight, which is funny because, of course, the Spaniards blamed the Puerto Ricans, um, despite the fact that the Spaniards had thousands of soldiers stationed in Puerto Rico. And they just were like, eh, I guess the game's up. It was just weird because especially when you hear the the words coming out of the Spanish government, like, no, 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 no. this is part of Spain. This isn't a colony. The Spanish soldiers like, fuck this. I just want to go home. Mm-hmm. Like nobody gave a shit. A Spanish force that had tripled the amount captured than killed with another 10,000 surrendering at the end of the campaign. The Spanish blamed their defeat on the native population of Puerto Rico, as racist empires have a tendency to do. One Spanish soldier wrote, calling the Puerto Ricans, quote, servile and ungrateful. 
This led to him nearly being lynched as a shitty racist later on. Uh, unfortunately, his life was spared. Bummer. Yeah. The war ended with the Treaty of Paris in 1898, which ceded the remaining Spanish Empire to the United States. This included Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico uh, directly, while the U.S. Uh, also got to outline their occupation of Cuba. Meanwhile, U.S. forces on Cuba, who were still there, were dropping dead from disease by the thousands from yellow fever, malaria, and typhoid. Uh, though a small side note here, because because of literally the endless amount of test subjects all around him, this is when the first studies were done by General Walter Reed, you know, who the hospital's named after, uh, that confirmed like that. that for the first time, yellow fever was spread by mosquitoes. Crazy how that works. So we did it. Anyway, the the rate of death and suffering led to what became known as the Round Robin Letter. This letter was penned by the commanding officers of the U.S. Fifth Corps to demand that they and their soldiers be sent back to the U.S. as they are all dying from malaria and yellow fever, and the the war was fucking over. They need to be in Cuba anymore. Right. This letter was drafted by Teddy Roosevelt and sent to U.S. Army headquarters in D.C. and he purposely leaked it to the press in order to get the people on his side. Now, Teddy was picked to do this over everyone else because he had no military career to worry about. Remember, he was a volunteer officer. He was going home at the end of this, and he was a politician. He did not give a single fuck. And people have pointed out that the Secretary of War, Alger, absolutely knew that he wrote this, which is why he got no awards until 2001. Yeah, there was, I guess there were some repercussions. Now, unlike another cry for help by an officer in the throes of an uncontrolled and easily preventable pandemic, this one actually worked. Uh, the soldiers in Cuba were almost immediately withdrawn and new occupation soldiers were dropped off on the island instead. The army decided that black soldiers from the south would be much better acclimated for the heat and the diseases of Cuba, which as weird and racist as that is, it actually kind of worked. God damn it. Yeah. Fuck me, I guess. Right. Like, I mean, occupation soldiers bad, uh, obviously, but like their, their switch actually with like the disease transmission rate was much, much lower um, and also, they had an idea of how to control the spread now. They would have had to be the ones to work out what to do about mosquitoes. I guess. But yeah, like as shitty and racist as it is, like, fuck, it worked. God damn it. Okay. By the end of the war, thousands of soldiers, tens of thousands on the Spanish side were dead. Virtually all of them from disease. Of the around 2,460 dead on the American side, a full 2,061 died from disease. On the Spanish side of the 15,800 that were dead, 15,000 were from disease. Jesus. In the end, both the Cubans and Puerto Ricans assumed that the U.S. had declared them independent and leave. But unfortunately, as we know, that did not happen. Even though it was promised, uh, the, the Senate passed the Platt Amendment as a rider to the Army Appropriations Bill, forcing a peace treaty on Cuba, which prohibited them from signing treaties with other nations or contracting public debt. It also gave the U.S. the right to invade Cuba whenever it wanted under the guise of stabilization uh, it would go on to do that several times over the years. And of course, it gave the U.S. Guantanamo Bay forever in perpetuity. I can't understand why there was a revolution. Yeah, this war would eventually lay the groundworks and the eventual rise of dictator Bautista, which would be overthrown by Fidel Castro's revolution. So congratulations, America. You fucking played yourself. Just give them independence. Imagine how yeah. different everything would be. Put a quarter in your ass because you played yourself. Yeah. As for Puerto Rico, it was under the rule of army officers and the Department of Indian Affairs of all people. 
At which point, the same process that was done to the natives and of the West was done to the Puerto Ricans, just shy of genocide. The protections laid out in the U.S. Constitution did not apply to the people of the island because they belonged to the United States. They were not part of it. People saw their society changed by force with no democratic outlet or representation of any kind. In 1899, U.S. Senator George Frisbee Hauer described Puerto Ricans as, quote, uneducated, simple-minded, and harmless people who are only interested in wine, women, music, and dancing, and recommended that Spanish should be abolished from the island's schools and only English should be taught. Schools became the primary vehicle of Americanization, and initially all classes were taught in English. As you can imagine, this led to an incredible downslide in education levels as people did not fucking speak English. Funny how that works. Military rule was replaced by civilian government by way of the Foraker Act of 1900. However, the act stipulated the governor, chief of police, and top officials were presidentially appointed, and they were all to be Americans, which remember, Puerto Ricans, not Americans. In 1901, the first U.S. civilian governor of Puerto Rico, Charles Herbert Allen, also became president of the largest sugar refining company in the world, American Sugar Refining Company. In effect, Charles Allen leveraged his governorship of Puerto Rico into a controlling interest in the entire Puerto Rican economy, and this just continued forever. It wasn't until after World War II that Puerto Rico was allowed to elect its own governor while still not being a state, which it still isn't. Same Same for Guam, for that matter. And American Samoa. And American Samoa, and the Marshall Islands, and so on and so forth. Anyway, give Puerto Rico independence. That's the end of the series. Or at the very least, let them determine to do whatever the hell they want. Yes. Yeah. That, 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 that should not be the realm of American decisions to make. Anyway, that is the Spanish-American War. Liam, we do a segment on this podcast called Questions from the Legion, and this one is good. I think this one is the first one that was actually made with you specifically in mind. Thank you. <laughs> If you'd like to ask a question from the Legion, donate to the show, ask us a question. Give us your money. Give us your money. Uh, through Discord, through Patreon, shove it into a bottle, fire it out of a cannon up a hill towards a Spaniard, and we will answer it on the show. This one is, what building in the world do you think makes the best supervillain fortress? And it says in parentheses, not the Pentagon. So I assume they want us to, to, to be imaginative here. Okay, so there's a couple answers that are good. The People's Palace in Romania, which we just did an episode Oh, that one on, is incredible, yeah. Uh, for sure. You know what I bet would actually kind of be a good one is the Hagia Sophia. Oh, yeah. Not that it ever was a fortress, but like you could fortify that shit real quick. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's got the vibe. It does have the vibe. Let's see here. That creepy-looking AT&T building in Nashville, for sure. The one that kind of looks like Batman. Yeah. Um, the, there's two that come to mind for me. There is the very, very creepy Ryongyang Hotel in Pyongyang, North Korea. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, I believe it's a hotel. I could be wrong. Maybe it's a casino uh, in Macau. I played Just Cause 3. I don't know. <laughs> about the yeah. I mean, it's Macau, so it's probably a casino. But like both of those, like it looks like there should be lightning strikes behind them all the time and like angry music from afar the patronus towers in kuala lumpur kind of freaked me out i don't know if that's really the same answer but i don't know they're always giving me the heebie-jeebies they all feel like they should be backlit by red and black only yeah anyway thank you 
unnamed person for your question from the Legion. Uh, I don't normally say who the questions are from. If you want me to do that, uh, give me a name uh, and I will actually do that. I've never thought of actually asking that before. Um, Liam, thank you for joining me on this wonderful series of lovely American history. Conversants, diarrhea, death. You know, I, I love a good time where, you know, Spain and the U.S. can shake hands about very fucking stupid history. Um, so good on on us, I guess. Um, uh, anyway, plug your show. Oh, well, there's your problem. It's a leftist engineering disasters podcast with slides and jokes. You're listening to my only podcast, but buy my book. Buy his book. Yeah, you can find the whole series. They're literally free for some of you. Uh, so download them. It helps. Uh, my time travel Teddy Roosevelt M. Prague fanfic about him and Frederick the Great. Of course, that's Teddy and Freddy. Uh, <sighs> will be available. Don't don't cut me off. Will be available. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, and until next time. Don't make Teddy fanfic. Don't make M. Prague Teddy fanfic. Yes. <laughs>